the food or the nutriment for the factors of enlightenment. Now we um, we had uh, yesterday we had um, how to not feed the hindrances. Well, this is how to feed the factors of enlightenment. We all have their seeds within us. If we didn't have those, there wouldn't be any point in feeding it. If we don't have seeds in the garden, it's pointless to um, put fertilizer in the garden because what's supposed to grow, there's no seeds there. So it would be pointless to feed the factors of enlightenment if we didn't have them within us. Unfortunately, they're all they're usually well hidden from us because we don't practice them. And not only that, but they're also covered over with our hindrances, with our defilements. And because of that, we don't even see them. But that doesn't mean they're not there. Even the seeds are in the ground, in the earth, we don't see them either. But they're there. And um, if we do clean up a bit and tidy up inside, we'll find them easily. So here we find out about the seven factors of enlightenment, what we can do in order to make them grow. And the Buddha says, and what is the food for the arising of the factor of enlightenment, which is mindfulness, which has not yet arisen, or for cultivation and fulfillment of it, if it has already arisen. Systematic attention to mindfulness, if it is made much of, is the food for the arising of mindfulness. Well, systematic attention is what we had yesterday also with the hindrances, which means that we need to be content with little steps step by step. Mindfulness, their attention, is in the first instance the mindfulness on our physical action and movement. And that should be practiced and cultivated outside of the meditation time as much and as often as possible, ideally constantly, watching one's steps, watching one's movements, watching everything that the body does, from the moment that it opens its eyes in the morning to the time it closes the eyes in the evening. Now, obviously, there are times during the day when the attention on the physical action of the body is not appropriate. Because you might be working with something such as typing or anything like that where the mind may be engaged and needs to be totally mindful and concentrated on that particular aspect, what's happening. Now, one of the things which are very helpful for mindfulness is the morning chanting, particularly when one knows it by heart. When one knows it by heart, one can become very easily a parrot, which means just chanting. Now, when one recognizes the fact that that is not mindfulness, one has to be aware of forming the words. And, ideally, the meaning behind the word. So that's obviously physical, forming the words a physical thing to do. But, it also goes over into the mental, namely the content of that word. Now that's the same in daily living. We are so habitual in our speech and in our chattering that we don't even notice forming the words and the meaning behind it. That's another way of being mindful. 
another way of using this particular aspect of mental formation, mindfulness, for recognizing oneself. There is no other way. To recognize oneself, one has to pay attention to forming the words and the meaning behind it. One has to pay attention to physical action. One has to pay attention to emotional states or mental states. Any of that is appropriate at different times. Private place does take the body, the attention to the movement. First of all, it is the easiest actually because one can see and touch the body. It is also what happens very frequently, the body does something, and it helps one to be objective. With one's emotional and mental states, one is always subjective. This is me, and very often this is poor me feeling like this, or this is clever me knowing this. But that's really already a reaction and no longer mindfulness. But with the body doing, walking along, opening a door, put the hand on the handle, putting the food in, in the mouth, well, there isn't really much chance of being that subjective. We don't become very clever when we walk and we don't, aren't very, um, not, uh, we don't have to have a great deal of pity for ourselves just because we're sitting down. So the objectivity when watching bodily action is much easier. And mindfulness is complete objectivity. Just watching this process going on. As I said before, not always is it appropriate. There are times when we do have to watch the mental, emotion, mental or emotional state or the content of the mind at a certain time. But that is the first factor of enlightenment, mindfulness. Everybody's got it to a minor or better degree unless we cultivate it and develop it we won't be able to recognize what's going on within ourselves. We'll always be half awake and half aware. Mindfulness is knowing only. Understanding is not a discriminating factor in mindfulness. It is just knowing and understanding what's going on. No discrimination in it just realizing what's happening. And with that, we can then follow the formula of recognition, no blame, change. The change is then our ability to discriminate between the wholesome and the unwholesome. Being the first factor of enlightenment means that without it there is no access to enlightenment factors. It doesn't mean the others are less important but it means that this is the access route. Without it, we can't get in. Without mindfulness, we can't get inside of ourselves. And enlightenment happens with inside of ourselves. Without mindfulness, we haven't got the doorway to look through, to see what's going on. The first one of the list of the things that the Buddha gave is always the access that we have to the rest of them. Mindfulness, the one way for the purification of beings, for the lessening of pain, grief and lamentation, for the final elimination of all dukkha, for entering the noble path, for realizing nibbana, the one way, mindfulness. It's a purification factor which doesn't have another equal. When we are mindful, we can't get angry. When we are mindful, we can't get passionate. We are just objectively mindful. So our negativities, those that make life so difficult, 
are ruled out at the time of mindfulness. There is no substitute. It is the one thing that has to be done. But by whatever name it may be called, in the Buddhist teaching, the translation of sati, S-A-T-I, which is the Pali word, has been agreed upon to be mindfulness. Anything will do. Bear attention, um, recognition, being there, anything. But we use the word mindfulness and we have to practice it. Attention on the breath is called anapanasati. Mindfulness of in-breath, out-breath. We learn mindfulness through the meditation and we practice it in daily life. Here, in this situation, if we don't practice mindfulness during the day, we're wasting our time. Now, the second factor of enlightenment, investigation into dhammas. What is the food for the arising of the investigation into dhammas, which has not yet arisen, or for the cultivation and fulfillment if it has already arisen. Well, first we'll have to see what that means. The investigation into dhammas. The translators are always uh, not sure what, they're, what it is, but it's quite definite what it is. It is the investigation into the three characteristics, into the phenomena. The word dhamma with a small d in English means phenomena. And phenomena are everything what exists. Everything is a phenomena, including ourselves. We are also a phenomena. Some of, us are, some of us are more phenomenal than others. But anyway, <laughs> we are phenomena. So the investigation into these phenomena means to investigate either anicca, dukkha, or anatta, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, or substancelessness, qualitlessness, one of the three. And obviously, anicca, impermanence, is the easiest one. Now, some people love investigating dukkha. It's usually those that have a great deal of faith in the Buddha. And that's fine. It doesn't matter which one. And then there are those that are very analytically inclined, and they like to investigate the substancelessness. I don't... Um, advocate that because when one investigates it without having a great deal of insight already one brings in one's own opinion and the whole thing just goes berserk nothing happens at all on the contrary wrong, more wrong view arises instead of right view so I always um, encourage to investigate impermanence and if anybody really loves to investigate Dukkha by all means. But the two are intrinsically connected because that what is impermanent can not continually bring satisfaction because it doesn't stay that way. So even the best thing has dukkha embedded in it because it is impermanent. So the best jhana, the highest jhana, the highest uh, level of consciousness as long as there isn't the enlightenment factor in it it's also unsatisfactory because it doesn't stay that way the only thing that stays is the enlightenment factor so the investigation into dhammas is something that has to go on in and out of meditation if we uh, use the meditation time only for practice, it just isn't enough. Practice is something that permeates one's life. Either we want to be on a spiritual path or we want to be on a worldly path. The spiritual path needs to be practiced day in and day out, from morning to night, whether we sit in meditation or not, and the worldly path will be able to be integrated, we will be able to integrate it into the spiritual path, if that's our priority. But if the worldly path is our, 
authority, it's very difficult to integrate the spiritual into it. In fact, it's probably impossible. People have tried it over and over again, and it never works. It's always off and on. But if as the spiritual part of our priority, then we can integrate the worldly into it without any difficulty. Very simple. No problem. Because mindfulness has arisen, everything goes smoothly and efficiently. And because we have been investigating and are investigating impermanence. Impermanence outside of meditation first. We can see it in nature so easily. Just look. We can see it in ourselves so easily. Just look. We are all expounding the Dhamma, the law of nature, all of us, without saying a word. Totally unnecessary to say anything. We are the law of nature. We just need to look. Every feeling, every thought is impermanent. This body constantly changing. Every breath is impermanent. Every heartbeat is impermanent. If it wasn't, we'd all be dead. Every step we take is impermanent. Every movement we make is impermanent. If it wasn't, we'd have to be frozen stiff. Otherwise, we can't be not impermanent. Everything around us, every movement that the birds make, every, every tree, every bush, every piece of grass, everything is permeated with impermanence. Daylight, night. Stars, moon, sun, rain, coming, going, coming, going. Look around you whenever you are outside and see it outside. It's called ex- externally investigating. We ex- investigate both. We investigate external and internal. It's happening within us and outside of us. When we start seeing impermanence, to that degree, and if we don't, we're not practicing, of course, then what's at the worldly life, that what happens in the world, we can see it just the same, it's impermanent. So what's there to get excited about? There is nothing that happens anywhere, at any time, that's worthwhile getting upset about. Nothing, because everything is impermanent. It comes and it goes. It arises and it ceases. But that's all very nice and sounds great, doesn't it? But it's got to be done in one's own experience. Only that what we experience ourselves will affect a change within us. Everything else is information. And information has never yet changed anybody into anything. Information can be boring, dry, interesting, fascinating, it doesn't do a thing. Unless we use that information to remember it and practice it all the time. Not just when we can be or have nothing else to do or where we can be remembering it or something happened that made us uh, upset so we've got to remember impermanence quickly nothing like that it doesn't do anything it's got to be done all the time why should we forget impermanence only because it doesn't seem to fit into the plan that we've made of our lives the plan that we've made is that we're permanent who can believe such a thing have you ever heard of anyone who's permanent it just doesn't happen does it And yet every single person that gets born onto this earth starts making a plan for permanence. Insurance companies are one aspect of that. It's got to be permanent. And all the upset, all the the emotional upset that people have, it's all based on permanence. It's got to remain this way. Then it didn't, and all of a sudden it's a tragedy. So we always do that, and now here we have a chance. While we're here, we really have a good chance to really investigate. Now, with that impermanent investigation and constant reaffirming and re, um, re-remembering that this is in, that everything is impermanent, it eventually becomes a basis for our practice, 
And as it becomes the basis for, the practice becomes the basis of our being. And we can no longer get upset about whatever happens. It just can't be upsetting. Because why? Because it doesn't stay that way. Five minutes later, it's already different. Now, the same thing needs to be said about impermanence connected to dukkha. When we see impermanence, we see that it's dukkha. There's nothing that can be totally satisfying because it can't remain. And when we see that quite clearly, that in, in turn helps us also to recognize it's useless to be upset. It can't be satisfying. It's impossible. And when we see that, we no longer believe that we have this monopoly on dukkha. That we really have got the worst part of it. We've got the wrong end of the stick. Everybody's got the wrong end of the stick. It's universal. And when we can feel that this is universal, at least we feel in good company. And we feel that we have a sort of a support system. Everybody's having this problem. Everything is impermanent. Nobody gets what they want. Everybody gets sometimes what they don't want. So if that's the case, so why am I getting upset about it? Everybody else seems to be all right, so it helps greatly. It helps greatly to see the impermanence as the cause for dukkha. It is the cause for dukkha, because it is nothing can be grasped and hung onto. Everything runs through one's fingers like quicksand. Everything, every thought, every feeling, even the most exalted one. And yet, humanity is always on the lookout for finding something that's going to really do it for them this time. They're going to do it quickly and cleverly and really wonderfully and they're going to do it this time. They're going to find something that's not going to run like quicksand. There is no such thing. The, mo- the most that people expect is for a lifespan is 70, 75 years. That's already a long time, isn't it? Six score and ten. So what's there, what's there to get upset about? It's all running along, moving all the time. It has to be seen in oneself and outside of oneself. This is the second fact of enlightenment, investigation of phenomena. Can one find a single phenomena in the whole of the universe, whether it's personal or impersonal, whether it's universal or whether it's just individual, that's not impermanent? it. If you find something that's not impermanent, please let me know. It's very interesting to find out what it is. Anything. Anything at all. And when we finally see that there isn't such a thing and really see that the whole aspect of this whole um, life continuum changes totally has a totally different uh, connotation. It's, um, it's like a, maybe we could say a six-act play. We know and after the six-act it's, it's, it's finished. We've got to go home. There's no way we can stay, or maybe seven acts. But that's it. Finished. So we just watch it. It keeps going. And some, once in a while we have to sort of do something too. We have to maybe uh, bring the uh, backdrop or we have to dress up in some clothing to, to make this play look more believable. But that's all. That's all there is to it. That's the whole story. All finished. <coughs> so we have to investigate that, huh? Second fact of enlightenment. Now let's see what the monk, uh, the, the Buddha told the monks about this. There are Things good and bad, blameworthy and not, mean and exalted, constituent parts of darkness and light. Systematic attention to that, if made much of, is the food for the arising of the factor of enlightenment, which is the investigation of the Dhamma, if if it has not yet arisen, or for the growth of it, its cultivation and fulfillment, if already arisen. I 
I don't know that this <laughs> this particular um, uh, paragraph is exactly the same as the uh, no food for hindrances um, for the for skeptical doubt. So it um, it's uh, it's um, suspect because yesterday we had exactly exactly the same paragraph as being if we see that if we see those things and then that we don't give skeptical doubt any food and here it is to be supposedly food for the um, investigation of dhammas but what it means if we can put the two together if it takes away skeptical doubt or doesn't feed skeptical doubt anyway we can see that because both things exist all the time that we can never find total satisfaction. There's always both available, good and bad, blameworthy and praiseworthy and so on. So total satisfaction will never be on the mundane level. So it concerns the dukkha aspect of the investigation. The third factor of enlightenment energy and what is the food for the arising of the factor of enlightenment which is energy not yet arisen or for the cultivation and fulfillment of it element of putting forth effort exertion and striving well that's quite uh, logical that those are the same elements that we had yesterday which are counteracting sloth and torpor because obviously the, con- the antidote for sloth and torpor uh, is, are these three and the opposite of sloth and torpor is energy so it's the effort, exertion and striving and there's a footnote here which is the initial effort of striving which casts off sloth becomes stronger as it draws nearer and nearer to the goal. These are different translations of the same thing. What is the uh, systematic attention needs to be, um, uh, if made much of, is the food for the uh, factor of enlightenment of energy. If I'm stuttering when I'm reading, it's because there's nothing there to read, just dots. <laughs> so I have to remember what the dots are for. It goes, you have to remember what it was before. So the, uh, the effort and the exertion and the striving obviously bring about the energetic See, that is the other thing that um, we need to look at, that the, um, we are easily overtaken by a mind which doesn't really want to do anything. It's uh, supposedly the easy way out of Dukkha. Just don't look at it. Just don't know anything and you won't have any Dukkha. It's exactly the opposite. It makes even more Dukkha. It makes more Dukkha because we can't stay in that state of not knowing. And also because the not knowing state is foggy and heavy and not pleasant. It's an unpleasant state. The not knowing state. The knowing state is bright and light and uh, satisfying because one feels that one has penetrated. Now, in order to bring the meditation to any successful state, energy is absolutely essential. And you'll see in a moment that energy is the one before the meditative factors here in the factors of enlightenment. Here we have first, we have mindfulness. Which, without which there's nothing happening at all. I mean, neither, neither calm nor insight in meditation can happen without mindfulness. So that's the general factor, that's the access road. Then comes the insight uh, part, 
which is the investigation, the introspection, the investigating of things as they really are. That's inside. Without that, nothing happens either. And then comes energy. And only after that comes the meditative practice. Now, energy also includes determination. It's a traditional way of saying in Pali that one wants to do something, one has made an aditana. An aditana means a determination. The Pali word for determination. And in Sinhalese it's also aditan. So one says that actually as a way of expressing that one has made a um, resolution to do something. Meditation cannot happen without it. And this is very often the cause for lack of success in meditation. There isn't enough determination. There's no oomph behind it. Unpleasant. One is contented with at least something neutral, not unpleasant, but that's not meditation. Meditation is science of mind, different levels of consciousness. Meditation is being aware of a totally different worldview, and meditation has to be one-pointed. That needs determination. Now, determination, I think I have already mentioned it, but I want to mention it again because it falls by the wayside so easily, doesn't it? Determination is not to get something. Determination is to give oneself. To give oneself to the meditation fully, wholeheartedly and completely. To give one's whole mind, one's whole effort, everything that one can master to it. Not to try and get, but to give. At the beginning of meditation, three things are needed before one starts meditating which all arouse energy. The first one that's needed is to have a feeling of gratitude or devotion or loving kindness towards oneself. Gratitude for the practice, devotion to Buddha or Dhamma or Sangha or all three. Devotion, which is also a love to the ideal or the ideal or love, loving kindness to oneself and the people around one. That's the first one that has to, has to happen. And then, after having done that, one can, to great advantage, the first one, very should have that love aspect in it. I love what I'm doing. I'm getting back to the first one. I love what I'm doing. I'm happy with what I'm doing. I really feel committed to what I'm doing. That would create a feeling in the mind which is already in the direction of energy. And then after that, having experienced felt this love feeling for what one is doing, for one's own efforts, maybe for the people around one who are making the same effort, then that feeling of gratitude that one is able to do this, and then the determination, determination to give oneself. So love, gratitude, and determination, and then start. Now, those three things can take one minute between them, or two minutes, not, not a time element at all, but it makes the mind pliable, makes the mind happy, it makes it um, capable. The Buddha said, in order to meditate, one has to be comfortable in mind and body. A mind that is uh, beset with problems, anger and worry, or fear, you can't possibly meditate. There's no way. So, first those things. First to have that love feeling, then the gratitude, and then the determination. And then one can start. So, all these three are uplifting. And uplifting means energy. Everything that's pulling down is without energy. It's just sort of 
falls along the bottom then. And determination is probably the one that's most often lacking. The determination to actually do it. There's very much also, there's one other thing that one can help oneself with, which also helps to arouse energy, the confidence that one can do it. When one has brought up the love for the practice and the love for oneself and for one's effort and other people's efforts, and then the gratitude that one is able, one is, has that opportunity, also the confidence that one can do it, and then the determination. So one has to bring up those emotional factors first. If one sticks to the emotional factors that one's always had, why should one be able to meditate? All, the whole being, the inner being, is all connected within oneself. So, if one wants to change one's ability to have levels of consciousness, one also has to change one's emotional factors. These are very easy to change. One, all, all one has to do is think differently. It's not difficult to think differently. Our mind is a magician. It can think anything anything at all. Just think differently. Now, with that deter- with those four things, confidence in oneself, determination and to give oneself, and the love and the uh, gratitude. In that order, love, gratitude, confidence, determination, I suggest. If you find it better other ways, it doesn't matter. Energy arises. And that energy then needs to be used for the mind to stay pinpointed and to go within. And that's what happens then. So that's the food for that. Now you see, energy as a factor of enlightenment, you can see how important it is. And energy is always connected to determination. Here it is connected to effort, exertion and striving. But striving is the determination. Striving sounds as if it is something to get, but it's a determination to give oneself. That determination is a very important factor, and that's the striving factor. And the exertion is not to give up if it doesn't work in the first five minutes to keep on exerting one's energy. Next one is in Pali, the piti, a delight, delightful sensation. Here it's translated as rest, but uh, I, I just won't use that. And what is the food for the arising of the factor of enlightenment, which is delight, which has not yet arisen, or for the cultivation and fulfillment of it, if already arisen. Now again, you can see how important the meditation is, how important the absorption is, because these are factors of enlightenment. I have, I'm constantly repeating that, because for some unknown reason, which I really can't fathom, and I don't know that anybody can, it has been put forth that these factors are not necessary for enlightenment. It's impossible to believe there are pages and pages of, on the factors of enlightenment and they're always the same seven factors. So the first one of the meditative factors which is mentioned is the first jhana, the delightful sensation. There's just no two ways about it. Why anyone would ever have taught that that isn't necessary, one can't really understand. Not only are the Buddhist discourses full of them, but the factors of enlightenment are such. So the first jhana is the first of the meditative factors of enlightenment. So what are we supposed to do? Systematic attention to it. Made much of, it's a food for the arising of that factor. So what systematic attention to the uh, first jhana? Doing it, day in and day out. 
And interestingly enough, one often finds people who are quite um, proficient at these levels of consciousness which arise through the different jhanas, that they leave out the first one. Not so interesting for some reason. Well, I wouldn't do that. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It should be practiced. And anyone who is really skilled at the jhanas, and it's a skill like any other, can arouse the first factor, this one, the first jhana, the, uh, the delightful sensation, at will, anytime. Anywhere at all. Don't have to have eyes closed and, be- and legs crossed, not at all. This one is, the, is easy to arouse under any circumstance. Why should that be useful? Well, first of all, it's useful because it counteracts, as you know, as I've told you many times, counteracts effectively all ill will. And if one has this delightful sensation within, there's no way that one can be angry or have ill will. And if one then can arouse it even during ordinary states of being, like sitting in a dentist's waiting room or waiting for a bus or waiting at a stoplight or whatever one is doing, even talking, um, then, of course, one has the, this marvelous antidote for one's anger, hate, ill will, dis- dislike, rejection, resistance, which the more we um, cultivate it, the less of those negative states will be there. So the purification keeps going. Obviously, one has to first be able to arouse it in the meditation and at will, anytime determination if necessary which arouses energy systematic attention means not skipping it not this uh, business of look how clever I am I can already do the second one I don't have to do the first one first one first second one second so this is the first jhana delightful sensation it also uh, contains uh, interest one is interested and so it should not be left out one doesn't have to stay with it for a very long time if one can go on to the others but it should be practiced systematic attention there's another discourse by the Buddha where he describes the ways to become enlightened which are possible after any of the jhanas the first one just as much as the its one now obviously having only had the first one one may not have enough calm yet but he said it was possible for here as being one of the seven factors obviously one has to practice it systematic attention and what is now the next one is called in the seven factors of enlightenment tranquility and it is most in most cases it contains second and third jhana because second jhana is actually joy and third jhana is contentment and peacefulness and tranquility has or probably third and the, the uh, first one, first and second, is sometimes translated in this way or that way. Um, I'm inclined, now that I'm thinking about it, to consider the delight as being part of first and second, and then the tranquility more the third genre. So, there is Uh, what is the food for the arising of the fact of enlightenment that is tranquility which has not yet arisen or for the cultivation and fulfillment of it if already arisen there is tranquility of body and tranquility of mind systematic attention if made much of is a food for the arising of this fact of enlightenment that is tranquility which has not yet arisen or for the growth of it for the cultivation and fulfillment if already arisen. 
Now here, the Buddha makes quite a distinction between tranquility of body and tranquility of mind, but tranquility of body is a result of tranquility of mind. It's quite obvious that a person that's agitated and uh, restless will have agitated and restless movements, and if it becomes extreme, one can quite easily see that. And a person who has calmness and tranquility of mind, if it isn't due to sloth and torpor, will have also tranquility of body. Now, it can easily be due to sloth and torpor and, uh, you know, sleepiness. But in the instructions, in the meditation instructions that the Buddha gives on several instances, he... It says that some, and in some instances, making the body tranquil. In other words, sitting in a position where the body can remain like that and trying to um, feel at ease with the body. It's impossible not to, to meditate if the body is not at ease. If there are aches and pains here and there, the meditation will not go into the absorptions. One can use those aches and pains for seeing one's resistance to dukkha. One can try and overcome one's um, resistance by taking the attention off and putting somewhere else. But eventually, in order to have the absorptions, one will have to be comfortable in body and mind because once in the absorptions, the body is no longer an issue. As long as the absorption is taking place, the body is not being felt. So there's no issue then. Of course, it's felt again when, it, when one comes out of it. But the tranquility factor, which is uh, mentioned here, has to be the absorption factor because a mind which is just calm in ordinary worldly circumstance is never tranquil or calm enough to have a level of consciousness where the non-existence of the person can be accepted without any resistance. It's only the jhanas that make it possible to accept that without any resistance and any fear about it because one notices already that the self um, illusion becomes, or the not illusion, the self-assertion becomes smaller and smaller in the jhana, in the meditative process. If it isn't very small, we can't be absorbed. You see, if there's a me sitting there saying, "Oh, isn't it nice? I'm so tranquil." Well, are we tranquil or are we talking? Obviously, we're talking. So. If we want to have real tranquility, the mind has to be absorbed in the tranquility without the me telling stories about it, which is, of course, the same for the first, second, third, and any of the jhanas. So we only get into that when this um, self doesn't have as much assertion as it usually has. The self-assertion is the problem. There is no other. But it manifests in many different ways. The more we are self-concerned, the more problems we have. The less self-concerned, the less problems. Logical, isn't it? And who's having a problem? If I'm concerned with this person, that's me, obviously problems can be uh, innumerable. If I'm not concerned, well, where are the problems? Uh, I'm impossible to even notice them. So the... um, Tranquility, which I'm now inclining to say is the third jhana, and not second and third, but just third, and the first one is first and second, the first one with the delight, uh, needs systematic attention, which again means doing it every day, doing it properly, knowing exactly where one is at, not hoping for the best, not letting the mind wander off and then disappear somewhere in limbo where one doesn't know exactly what's going on 
it's got to be systematic attention step by step knowing exactly only when we have our mind under such control that we know where it's at exactly can we have the control to become enlightened becoming enlightened means getting rid of all this rubbish that the self throws up all the time because the self's gone by that time sorry this illusion of the self has gone by that time the self was never there was always an illusion And what is the food for the arising of the factor of enlightenment which is concentration, which has not yet arisen? Or, or for its growth, cultivation and fulfillment if already arisen. Now here the word concentration is used. And I'm inclined for to... to um, say that that is the fourth jhana because only the fourth jhana has absolute concentration in it. Even in the third jhana there is still the possibility of having an occasional stray thought but what is definitely happening in the third jhana is that sounds can still be heard even though they seem to be at a distance. They don't seem to be near. They seem to be at this one sitting under under the, a glass uh, cover or something like that, which mutes the sounds. But it's only in the fourth jhana that sounds can disappear completely. So that is then summer samadhi, the right concentration. And so here we are talking about again the same thing. There are sights that come that, that do not bewilder. Systematic attention is the food for the arising of that concentration. Now, the sights that come and that do not bewilder must necessarily include all the sense contacts. So it's Sights and sounds, tastes and touch, and thought. So if we really want to have our meditation work properly, any of the absorptions, first or whatever, it's extremely important what we think at the times when we're not trying to meditate. It has to be thoughts that are calming and not thoughts that are upsetting and bewildering. If we can't change our mind, we wouldn't be human. We've got it within our language even. I just changed my mind. It's okay, isn't it? Anybody changes their mind. People change their minds constantly, sometimes to their detriment. But here we're supposed to change our mind for our benefit calming thoughts that's why an, uh, an environment such as this is very helpful because nothing much is happening except that what's going on in the mind I mean birds don't get one really excited do they and uh, neither do wallabies or, or trees eucalypts or whatever I mean it's not very exciting and that's exactly what's needed a calm environment so that the sights which we see and nature is calming and the distance, the view of the distance is coming. And the sounds that we hear, which might be just animal sounds or wind sounds, all that's coming. The wind in the leaves is coming. The waterfall, that's a calming sound. And the, the same way that we don't have anything happen, where we don't have to squeeze ourselves into a um, very uh, full bus, or we don't have to sit in a car constantly and rattle along roads and speed up or something like that. None of this is necessary. So this is the environment. But now we must take advantage of the environment for the sense contact. It's there. 
with our thinking and the thinking should go along the line of the second factor of enlightenment the investigation into impermanence the investigation into the dukkha which is entailed in impermanence anything that brings us some lack of concern with this world this world is nothing but a as I said a six act play I mean why are we so concerned with it we don't we are not even playing at the moment they're all doing it out there we're not even in it so what's so interesting about all that stuff out there so it ha- the uh, sense, senses have to be calm in order to do the meditation properly and because of the sense contact outside sense contact being taken care of here we must remember to think properly well there's one more I'll leave that for tomorrow because I've got to go to Moscow just leave you some time to ask some questions rather do you have any questions anything perfectly clear everything Stillness. No, no movement. No mind movement. Or at least hardly any. There's still something, but it's very it's stillness. One can say like that. It's very often. Uh, uh, just being uh, expressed as equanimity, but uh, I don't think that's the right kind of expression. It's, um, no. The third jhana is contentment and peacefulness. Equanimity is the seventh factor of enlightenment. I'll talk about it tomorrow. So, stillness would be the fourth. Second one is joy, third one is contentment and peacefulness. Contentment is very marked in the beginning of the third and then changes into peacefulness. But stillness is not peacefulness. See, the words are not very adequate, but the best I can do. (laughs) Anything else? which has happened many times and I can show you books where it's written up totally wrong and that's fine but to investigate this um, substancelessness the non-self brings people quite often onto the wrong track of thinking through the investigation if one is very analytically inclined and wants to do it why not I mean it's okay Um, but I'm always advocating use impermanence it's so obvious use the obvious use that which is so simple 
And it's so obvious and people constantly um, overlook it completely. So uh, that approach that you just mentioned is fine. That's absolutely correct. That's fine. So one day you shouldn't even get those things anymore if you've said it often enough to yourself. (laughs) Anything else? 